I offer now a reading from uh, Matthew's Gospel in the 18th chapter. It begins at the 15th verse. There we find these words. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven." For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? Uh, As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, seventy-seven times. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Excuse me. Well, I have a confession to make this morning. I must tell you that I am as happy as I can be to stand here before you today. Yeah. Some of you know the inside joke, it would appear, right? Now, I say with full awareness that a pastor should not call attention to themselves at the risk of diminishing the gospel message in the hearing of the congregation. So the the sermon should not be about me. But please, allow me some personal reflection this morning because that reflection has helped me and it may help you to understand how the gospel is realized in today's assigned topic, which is the question, what is Christianity? And the focused answer, confession. Forty days ago, sounds like the beginning of a Bible story, doesn't it? Exactly 40 days ago, my right knee was surgically replaced. In the Bible, as many of you know, important lessons are learned or important human activities occur with God's leadership and involvement during periods of time often described as 40 days or 40 years or a goodly number always with the number 40 in front. For example, it rained on the whole whole earth for 40 days and 40 nights during the time of Noah. For 40 years, the Israelites wandered in the wilderness as they escaped from slavery and worked their way toward the land that God had promised them, and it took them 40 days to make the sojourn. And remember also, importantly, that Jesus suffered in the wilderness for 40 days before Satan came to him with those awful temptations, temptations that included bestowing upon him earthly powers that Jesus refused. So my knee's 40-day anniversary, or as as it was approaching and I was writing this, it got my attention. And it made me pay attention a little bit to uh, what's going on in this process we call confession. And I found something of a parallel. So let me describe that for you. Firstly, let me tell you that my surgeon did an absolutely wonderful job. If it were ethically possible, I'd have his business card on the screen right now. 
But when he was done with me, almost as soon as I regained consciousness in the recovery room, my nurses had me on my feet. They were insisting I walk laps around their nurse's station. Then I was sent home, and I was encouraged to walk about the house when I got there. And my wife was even instructed, if he wants a glass of water, you make him get up and get it himself. First day. It felt to me, I had this curious feeling that just came over me in those early days. And I can't even remember how it started or which day it was. But along those first days, I had this very curious sensation. This feeling as though somehow... During this process of knee replacement, I had become taller. Truly, that's a thing of honor among my brothers and I, which one of us is taller than the other, we still compare now in our 60s. But you know, after I began that feeling, it became more particular. In particular, the knee, the leg that had the new knee in it, it felt like it was longer than the other knee, than the knee that had not been operated upon. So, when I was in therapy this last week, I told my therapist about that feeling. And so they stretched me out on the rack, as I call it, and they made sure everything was perfectly aligned, and they measured, and my legs are precisely the same length. Yet that feeling persists. It's just a feeling. So my sensation of of one leg longer than the other is not based on physical reality at all. It's something within me. Perhaps those of you whose club I've, I've recently joined, the Knee Replacement Club, have had similar sorts of feelings. Maybe we can compare notes later out in the centrum. So just sort of keep that process in mind and let me turn to the topic of the day, which is confession. And when I use that word confession, when I use that word in this place, the pulpit, or when I use it there at the altar as we offer our collective and individual confessions before the Lord, your mind might quickly go to what has been since 1988 in page 56 of those hymnals what's called the brief order of confession and forgiveness. And that brief order is the very same words that we see on the screen now in a more modern presentation. And I ask you to face the truth. It's easier to comprehend the words on that printed page or or projected screen week after week than it is for any one of us to go to someone we have harmed, offer our confession to that person, ask for their forgiveness, and, and make tangible amends for the harm we have caused. We won't do a show of hands, but most of us probably haven't done something like that very recently, if ever. Though That's because offering such a confession to another person face-to-face is hard. It's extremely hard. It's emotionally and spiritually difficult. And so we avoid it. Most, if not all of us, would rather have joint replacement surgery than go and do something like that in front of a neighbor. And as hard as making a confession like that is, it's even harder if, we honest, if we're honest with ourselves to forgive someone else when the even more rare occasion arises when they might come to us and confess to us how they have caused harm. 
And it's hard for us to accept that confession because we human beings have a flaw. We hold grudges, do we not? We certainly do. The wounds of sin perpetrated against us don't seem to ever heal. The scar over my right knee is healing nicely, but it'll never go away. I'll always see it. If I were wearing short pants, you'll always see it. And that's, that scar of pain caused by others doesn't just fade away either, does it? We may receive our neighbor's words of confession, but our vengeful hearts, they betray us. We hold that hurt within us. Jesus knows this dynamic, clearly. So did Peter. That's why the disciple asked if he, if he should forgive a person seven times. Now, seven is a number we all know. We do this, there's seven. But in the Hebrew tradition, certain numbers had a figurative meaning. And, and the number seven, in Jewish thought, was interpreted as meaning, in this context, as many times as necessary. Seven. The complete number of times, if you will. Jesus, when he hears Peter say this and use that number, immediately sees that forgiving someone the figurative seven times is not enough. Not enough for Christ's disciples. Jesus then gives Peter and us the instruction in my translation to to forgive others 77 times. Now, that's 77 in the Greek can really be translated two ways. Obviously, one of them is 77. And equally as valid is another way. Seven times 70. In Jesus' math, that would be about 490 times, right? Roughly. Lots of times. But if you interpret that according to the way the Greek language would, it would be interpreted as an infinite number of times, an uncountable number of of times. That's how often you forgive that one who confesses to you. This, of course, forgiving that infinite number of times is just impossible for us, is it not? We, we struggle doing it once. An infinite number of times, really? Which of us could possibly take on Jesus' challenge to such an extreme? And then, as hard as it is to forgive the other, whether it's one or many times, the hardest person of all to forgive is your own self. All of us have sinned and fallen away from God's word. All of us have hurt someone else. If we're really critical of our own behavior, we've probably done it at least once so far today. Maybe we didn't even know we did it, but we have. The weight of our guilt of hurting others bears down on us during the course of our lives, during the course of of our lives as they extend out as long as mine has. The pain of this truth robs us of the joy of life and leaks out of our persona and that leakage of being downtrodden affects everyone around us. We may not realize it, but it does. It affects who we are and how we act. Jesus calls us to forgive our neighbor and to forgive ourselves an infinite number of times. Yet, we cannot forgive ourselves even even once. 
We carry that problem with us always. How do we escape this, what I call, spiraling trap? This trap where we need to offer our confession and receive forgiveness and to be relieved from our burden of sin that just bears down on us, yet we fail to confess or to forgive, thereby committing sin upon sin and then finding our burden of sin increased all the more. If we rely on our own human nature and the way we we seem to be hardwired, there can be no relief from what I call the sin cycle. For nearly three years, and, and quite frankly, it could have been much longer. I don't really know. I suffered an awful lot of leg pain. I took various pain-killing pharmaceuticals. I endlessly rubbed miracle ointments on my knee that I'd seen advertised on TV. I even tried to strengthen my leg by going to the gym and working the muscles around the knee to see if maybe that was the problem and it could be overcome in that way. When none of these things worked, I simply began to compensate. I did it in various ways. My left leg was called upon to do more work than my right thereby making my left leg hurt too. I avoided the activities I love, like walking through a round of golf, because I knew that walking that distance was going to cause my leg to just bark at me all day and all night. Many of you, even in this church, in the time I've been here, have observed me use our church elevator over this year and a half and more, and that was to baby my leg from hurting too much before the end of my workday. Brothers and sisters, none of these things I did did anything at all except hide the obvious. I needed help, and I had to, that help had to come from someone with power that was far beyond my own or something I could find on a shelf somewhere. My surgeon, thanks be to God, has the wisdom and skill to restore my knee to its proper function. And perhaps even more importantly, his work has relieved me of my long-endured pain. Forty days after surgery, I still have a good deal of rehab remaining, to be sure. However, I'm no longer compensating for a deteriorated joint. I have a titanium one. (laughs) I can stand straight and tall again, and my body feels almost as it should, notwithstanding the additional rehab I must do. My knee replacement analogy I offer this morning is not perfect, I admit that. But my pre-surgical plan and compensation is something like we are, excuse me, my pre-surgical pain and compensation is something like we all suffer as the pain of our sinfulness bears down upon us more and more with each day of our lives. The weight we carry steadily increases during the course of your life. This building up is so persistent that you might not even notice your pain intensifying. Yet it it adversely affects not only your own life, but the lives of everyone in community around you, here, in your neighborhood, in your household, everywhere. You cannot fix this sin problem with any sort of salve or medication. The solution is beyond your capability. In your pain in your suffering, in the carrying of this great weight, God comes to you. He comes not as a surgeon, but he comes with his compassion and his wisdom. 
And God comes to you with a great love for you. After all, he created you. He offers to completely remove the onerous burden of sin that you carry. In the church, we call that absolution. God forgives us all our sin in the formal absolution as I pronounce it at the altar in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. His name. Okay then, you might say, this sin thing is conquered. We have the magic words. I'll just come to worship each week and when that paragraph at the bottom of page 56 in the hymnal uh, is pronounced by the pastor, I'm off the hook. My confession is complete and my sin is gone. Right? As Luther would say, by no means. By no means. We remember the parabolic image of Jesus standing and knocking outside of the door. We've seen that image by artists and and heard that image um, described in scripture since we were young. And then we come to realize that the faithful follower of Jesus must go to the door and invite Christ to come inside. This is to be our response to Jesus coming to our door in the first place, to invite him in. It's not just Jesus out there that saves us. It's the combination of the two, his appearing and our inviting. And so it is in our understanding of the Lutheran Confession liturgy. We know that Jesus stands ready to give us his absolution that happens at the very end of the page. Therefore, we learn to come freely and thankfully to the opportunity to actively confess our sins. Consider this. If you knew in advance that your mother was going to give you a cookie if you confessed truthfully to having broken the vase in her living room, that could have happened once. At least once, right? Well, once to me anyway. If you knew that she was going to give you a cookie for that truthful confession, would you be eager and joyful about your confession? God our Father has offered you far more than a cookie when you come before him in confession. How much more should we respond to his promise and his invitation to come before him truthfully and fully? Does it sound like a really good deal that we need to confess to God, get that big heavenly cookie of absolution, and then skip away without ever having to directly um, confess to the actual person we have harmed? Mm, Please note, I never said you don't have to actively go confess to the one you harmed. I really didn't. We are made, brothers and sisters, in the image of God. And that divine image is projected from us to others as we live in this creation. If Jesus stands ready to forgive us at the door, and we are called to be Christ-like, that is, if we are called to be Christian, should we not be ready to receive the confession of one another and to offer our compassionate forgiveness? The reverse is also true. Shouldn't we stand ready to confess to our brother or sister who reflects the image of God to us? The obvious answers to both of these questions is of course. And for these reasons, our church tradition teaches that confession and forgiveness are, uh, in Luther's words, Luther's own adjectives, 
wonderful, precious, and comforting blessing. These things should never be despised, especially when we consider how great a need each of us has. Make no mistake, not one person is compelled or required to confess their sins or to forgive the sins of others. We're not required to do so. It is the love of God, the life of the gospel, which calls us to do these things, invites us strongly to do these things, yet we resist them all too often. We resist the call to humble ourselves before others or to restore a person to Christian community after they, after they have committed a wrong. Again, in our hymnal, our brief order of confession and forgiveness, which thanks to Pastor Watts, we include in our worship each week, is, I'm sad to report, not universally loved. I've heard some folks over my career come to me and say what's printed on that page 56 and has been printed there without change since 1988 is, in their words, too Catholic. Others have come to me to argue that we don't need to waste time with confession We should use this valuable worship time for other more uplifting things. Still others don't want to recognize that sin exists, and so they say we don't need time for confession. And I guess by extension, they don't need time for forgiveness either. In response, I ask you to notice some of the words that I am privileged to say to you that appear on page 56. Those words I offer to you a second time this morning. Those are, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The truth is not in us. And you should be hearing in your mind right now Jesus saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. If we deceive ourselves into walking away from confession, Jesus, the truth, is not in us. After I offer you this brief but startling statement, I admit, our hymnal in the next step of confession, in red letters, which don't appear on the screen, they're called rubrics, instructions, if you will. In those red letters, our hymnal says that we are to observe silence for, as it prints, reflection and self-examination. It's during this uncomfortable silence that hangs among us in the midst of confession that we are to call to mind those things that we are bound to confess to our Maker. At the same time, we call to mind those things that we should confess to our spouse, our neighbor, or anyone else. In that brief period of silence, we listen for God's small voice at the same time And we listen as it guides us to reconcile ourselves to those we have wronged and to those who have wronged us. Is that a difficult process? Certainly it is. It absolutely is. No one should say it's easy. Nobody, nobody, especially our Lord, told us that Christianity was going to be easy. And neither is confession. I leave you with one final thought. If, in fact, and I I posit they are, if confession and forgiveness on one hand and Christianity itself are both easy, 
Maybe they're tied together in some way. Maybe they are linked together in some special way. We struggle. We struggle as uh, we struggle to do as Jesus would have us to do, and we fight against our own nature when it <clears throat> excuse me, when it comes to forgiving others or asking those others, or or even asking God himself to forgive us. And so given those similarities, there we find the deep connection between confession and Christianity. In fact, that's what Luther has taught in his large catechism. There I found a quote from Brother Martin. That's a little bit lengthy, but I think most appropriate for this day. He wrote 500 years ago, When I encourage you to go to confession, I am doing nothing but encouraging you to be a Christian. If I bring you to the point of following Christ, I have also brought you to confession. For those who really want to be upright Christians and free from their sins and who want to have a joyful conscience, truly truly hunger and thirst already. They snatch at the bread just like a hunted deer burning with heat and thirst as Psalm 42 that Colleen read for us says, as a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. That is, as a deer trembles with eagerness for a fresh spring, so I yearn and tremble for God's word, for God's absolution, and for the sacrament. In this way, Luther writes, confession would be taught properly. And such a desire and love for it would be aroused. That people would come running after us. And by us, he means Christians. Come running after Christians to get this confession and forgiveness. And so he concludes, let us lift our hands in praise and thanks to God that we have attained this knowledge and this grace. Sisters and brothers, I submit to you that That which is easy to do or simple to accomplish is quickly taken for granted. That which is difficult to understand or hard to accomplish is highly valued once it is attained. That which is gained by seeking after God's grace, that thing is precious. Bless you. May God, our Father, who lovingly forgives you all your sins, inspire you to forgive others as he has forgiven you. And that you see God's grace in your brothers and your sisters as you confess the harm that you have done to them. May the love of God inspire you, inspire you to do what is possible to repair the damage that you have done to them. And to the people of God's community who share this life with you. And may the peace which surpasses all understanding be upon us all as we come to love the forgiveness we receive from God, and hopefully far more often, from and with neighbor. Amen.